welcome to your 2012 April edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Brian Walter. And for the next four months, we are going to explore, debate, scrutinize, unpack, repack, comment on, occasionally mock, and continuously celebrate the art and business of speaking professionally. So, let's get to it. All right, here we are with Platform Power, and I am with Mike Damish, CSP, founder of the Date Safe Project, who shifted society's no means no message to do you ask. All right, so the reason we asked Mike to be here today is he has two intriguing ways that he closes, or I should say almost closes, almost all of his presentations. Now, Mike, first let the viewee audience know who your audiences are, because you don't get to work with nice, safe, normal business people. You have, like, one of the world's toughest audiences. Who are? They are middle school students, high school students, U.S. military, and parents. Yes. And you're not talking about leadership skills. What are you trying to get them to do? I'm talking about sexual decision-making. Yes. And not just go for it whenever you want. So- That's correct. We're doing the opposite. We're going to teach safety. We're going to reduce sexual assaults and give them safe boundaries to be able to live by. Yeah, so kind of a tough topic here, but yet you use massive amounts of humor and engagement, and so let's just assume it's near the end of your presentation. You've got them, you know, riled. They're drinking the Kool-Aid, hopefully, that you have with your Do You Ask message, and then you have a technique that you described to me as the giveaway proof. What's the giveaway proof? The giveaway proof is through the use of a giveaway, you prove to the people who brought you to that event that your message has gotten through. And the way you do that is you have rewards set up. For me, it's t-shirts and books that are on stage. And our t-shirts are ones that our audience absolutely wants. When they walk in the room and they see the shirt on stage, they're saying, how can I get that shirt? So we've got a high demand item on stage. Are you going to be selling this later? We do sell those also. So this is... This is before you sell it. Correct. Wow. So this is also an infomercial. It, without ever mentioning the sale. The perfect you, kind. Yes, correct. It lets them know about it. And so what we do is we say, you've been a great group tonight, and so we want to reward you. So we're going to give away all the remaining T-shirts and books that we have up on stage here, which is six to nine items. Okay. All you have to do is raise your hand and tell me something you're going to use from today's show immediately in your life and or how you're going to use it. If you do that, you get your choice. And whoever shows me the most passion is the one I'm going to call. If you're excited, I'm probably more likely to call on you. Suddenly, you have people jumping out of their seats. You have people standing on their seats. You have people doing little dances. So you will call on them. And you'll call on them and you'll get some amazingly profound So what would it be? So you see someone going spastic in a hopefully not too crazy, too intense sort of way. And you go, you and... How does it, do you say, you, Barbara, and what do they say? What things comes out of their... Right, and I don't even know the name because it's an audience of right. thousands. So I, can't, so okay. I would just be like, right there in the red. Okay. And she'll, oh, what are you going to do? And she'll be like, I, I'm going to call my sister as soon as I get home and let her know how much I, I think about her and that she can always come to me if anything ever happens on a date or at a bar. Anyway, they can always come to me. I've never told her that. And I realized tonight I need to tell her. And so you get something profound like that. Right. And then you say, okay, go get your t-shirt. Nope. Nope. I say, which item would you like? First of all, I Ah. say, thank you for sharing. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Then which item would you like? And they'll say the shirt or the book. I say, great. We'll hold it up on stage for you here. Okay. So that way you don't have to worry about people running around. So then you point to some guy and what might a guy say? So he actually, like a lot of guys will make that statement about, I'll call my sister. Mm -hmm. But you'll get one like, you know what? I've never asked before. I am going to ask from now on. 
I realized I should be doing this. Okay. And then you'll get really fun ones. You'll get a, a male or a female who'll stand up and go, you know what? I'm going to ask my partner what they wish I was doing for them tonight. And oh, yeah, yeah. The place goes crazy. So mm-hmm. it turns into an entertaining part of right. the show. And it also tells the event coordinator and everybody in the room, hey, people are taking action. I don't have an excuse not to do this myself. Nice. So you're letting the whole room know that the commonality in the room is everybody is taking action. Cool. And so it gains more momentum. Now, so this is an awesome technique, and those of us will be thinking, great, and then Mike moves into his clothes, and then it's a big finish. But that was actually the penultimate technique before your clothes. What, what, is, what is the other thing you immediately go into after that before your clothes? So then flowing right from there, I say, well, those were the eight or nine items we had to give away that we had in hand here. But the good news is... Everybody in this room today is going to have the opportunity right now to get a free book, three free videos from me, and the chance to win an iPad. If you'd like that, yes, if you'd like that, yell yes. The room yells yes. yes, I'm about to give you instructions for this to happen. First of all, you need your cell phones. They're just grabbing, grabbing their cell phones. I am going to give you a number to text to. I'm going to tell you what to say in the text, and then I'm going to tell you when to hit send. Don't hit send before then, or you will not be able to get any of this stuff. And I'm very clear that you are about to get on an email list, because that's how I'm going to send you all this. So if you don't want this, don't do this. I only want you to get on the email list if you want to be on the email list. And they're thinking, yeah, yeah, shut up. Just tell me what to do now. Right. They don't argue. Exactly. exactly. So then I give them the five-digit number that Mm -hmm. they're going to text you. Like 4431. Yep. I'll give them mine. I'll give you an example. Everybody in the audience can do this. So anybody listening. So I could get my free thing. You can. Okay. So everybody listening, right now, pull out your cell phone. Okay. And text the number 86677. 86677. In the text, text. type the word. Two words combined as one. There's no Mm -hmm. space between them. Ask first. That is A-S-K-F-I-R-S-T. No space. Then a space. First. Yeah. Then space. Then space. Then your first name. Brian. B-R-I-A-N. Okay. Then a space, space. Your email address. That's longer. That's Brian a bit of a longer. At extrememeetings.com. Got it. Perfect. Okay. And then now hit send. Hit send. Bah. When you hit send, within 30 seconds to a minute, you're going to get a text back asking you to do one more thing. Do that, and you will get an email from me making sure you want all of this. Right. Okay, there's, there's now the Now, the email they're getting back, so yeah. everybody out there listening knows. Okay, yes, the email they're getting back says, good job. You completed the text. Now, just one more thing. Text Mike back. Ask Mike and what you're going to use from tonight's show and hit send. So they do that. Then they get the email me from me saying a double opt-in email. Make sure you click this link if you really want all this stuff. And they're in. Here's the magic. All of those people just texted you what they're going to use from your show. You go that night back to your hotel room, download those answers, Put them in a PDF, send to the client. Here's the 300 things your audience members said they were going to do tonight. Thank you so much for bringing me. I'm glad we were able to get results with your audience. I think the kids call that freaking brilliant. Okay, so, okay, so let's say I'm in VUE land and I'm thinking, Mike Damage, that's amazing. I want to totally do that idea. Uh, obviously, I can't just instantly do that on my own. You have to hire some vendor. Can you share with us, what vendor do you use to do this? I use the vendor Boom Text. That's B as in boy, O-O-M as in Michael, and then text. T as in Thomas, E-X-T as in Thomas. Boomtext.com. Mm-hmm. And if they're great because if you call them 9 to 5, they're somebody will actually pick up the phone. 
Let's well, for a tech okay. company. And actually, I'm going to tell everybody to email Bobby at boomtext.com. B-O-B-B-Y? Yep. B-O-B-B-Y, okay. because yeah. I've worked with him, and he's okay. very consistent. Bobby at boomtext.com. Yep. I do not have an affiliate relationship. Okay. Uh, he's just, he's been <laughs> great to work with, uh, and maybe they'll give me one after this, but I don't, I've never yeah, asked okay. for one. Uh, so I'm just giving you the person sure, I sure, work sure. with who's great. Okay. Yeah. Well, great. Well, this, I think we should call this a combination platform, power, and stuff all speakers should buy. So, by the way, thanks for the, the free videos. Oh, my pleasure. And the book. They're going to get the Voices and of Courage the book. book. They're going to find that link in one of the first emails. Yep. And it's all going right to my college-age daughter. Excellent. All right. Here we are with Building the Biz, another segment where we talk about how you can increase your sales or the size of your enterprise. And today, we are with Colleen Stanley. Now, Colleen is president of Sales Leadership. So right there, that sounds darn pretty pretty darn good, I'm thinking. Uh, Colleen's clients range from like huge industrial conglomerates like Siemens uh, to other incredibly cool clients that you and I wish we had, like the Orlando Magic. So... Uh, Colleen, I'm curious, what the heck do you do for the Land Orlando Magic? Well, we do what we do every day, and that's sales training. So actually, uh, with the power of NSA, my good friend Ruby Newell-Legner yes. uh, referred me in, and we did some sales training as far as increasing their ticket sales. Uh, this was a few years ago when they actually some of the recession was going on, and how do we maintain those? So that was just one of our many projects. All right, so how to sell tickets even when your team isn't winning all that much. Right? <laughs> Didn't say that. Bro. I said that. I said that. That's okay. All right, so here's here's why we asked you to be with us t- uh, today, Colleen. Um, I'm sure you've probably noticed this, but I've been going to a lot of NSA conferences and conventions, and anytime there's a breakout session that has the word marketing in it, that's very sexy. Everybody goes to that social media marketing techniques, marketing, marketing, marketing. And then you put sales in front of another workshop and it's like well i guess i should probably go to that wonder if i could send a staffer if i had a staffer it's almost like they wish like sales would just magically happen i'm guessing that that you're since president of sales leadership that you're uh, a big advocate for actually having sales strategies and skills that would be correct. So a lot of times what we've seen, and by the way, NSA is one of the most brilliant organizations on the marketing. However, what I've seen is the marketing copy often doesn't match the sales copy. So you do all this great work on social media, LinkedIn, uh, whatever your strategy is, and there is a point where you do need to talk to someone. And so they've got, uh, they're looking at a website that says cutting edge, and they get the person on the phone, and there's nothing cutting edge about the conversation. I do this, I do that, I'm the biggest, best, and I'm local. So instead, they're thinking, I'm sorry, did I call Loser Incorporated? Not really. Okay. Correct. So okay. our marketing copy isn't matching our sales copy because right. there hasn't been an emphasis on the skill training. All right. So, Colleen, imagine that you're talking exclusively to relatively successful speakers who they, they've got a good product, they've got good marketing, and they've gotten to the size where they said, you know, I'm ready to hire a salesperson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, or I've, had a, I've hired a salesperson and it was a horrible mistake. I did a very bad job here. So can you give us some tips on how do you hire and ramp up a salesperson who's going to take your business to the next level? Well, the, the first thing is probably study some of the greats out there in hiring. So, for example, there's wonderful books like Top Grading that are out there. The book Top Who, Grading? Top Grading by Brad Smart. I would get really smart about hiring because what happens is many of us, without knowing it, purchased a job. 
and that is fine. But if you're really looking at building a business, you've got to learn how to hire and train different staff people. So for example, at one time when I was VP of sales, I had 135 salespeople. Get into this business, I'm thinking, this has got to be easy. This is a harder profession to actually find a good salesperson. So here's some of the tips I would give people. Is the big thing when you're hiring, uh, a rule of thumb is, Past experience is the best indicator of future results. So you, most of us are entrepreneurs, sole proprietors looking to grow the business. Number one, I'd be vetting a person's resume heavily for a couple of things. Have they ever worked in startup? Do they understand the chaos? Are they a person that can walk into an office and start putting systems and processes in place? Or are they looking for the nearest Starbucks? So you've got to look for almost what they call scrappy, figured out mentality, no entitlement mentality. And there's a way to vet the resume for that. So I get a lot of resumes into our office, and the, the titles are incredible. But these people also had five assistants, a full-time marketing department, etc. And I've lived that world. But I've also grew up in a startup that went public. So I've done scrappy. I've done very systematized. So that's number one. I'd vet that resume very heavily for that personality profile. So you, say you, so you say you vet the resume. What are some of the leading indicators on that resume that either waves a red flag or waves a green flag? Okay, so let's say a red flag. As a speaker, perhaps your lead gen program isn't one where there's tons of leads coming in at this point. Some of, some of the speakers, that's not an issue, but let's just use that context. Well, all of a sudden, you've hired a salesperson that actually on the resume it showed they were pretty good, except what you forgot to ask was, how did you source your leads? Were they handed to you by the marketing department? Was there an incredible uh, website presence? Or did that person actually have to go out and source? So there's a difference between sourcing leads, uncovering your own leads, and developing those to a first appointment versus someone that can actually do pretty well, but the lead was handed to them. Two different selling scenarios, and you've got to really understand, hey, where's your organization at this life cycle? And if it means the person needs to source, you better be vetting the resume for that. Got it. That's great. And so when I'm what I'm hearing you say when it comes to experience, you want someone who passed experience doing what you need. This is not the time to hire someone with potential. No, potential is not good in husbands or employees. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so that's a red flag there, which is, okay, make sure that you know the type of salesperson they were doing having to do with their source. Since we all like pain more than pleasure sometimes, what is another red flag where you look at it and go, ooh, this is another thing to watch out for? Okay. A red flag perhaps is linking to this, but it is, will they do the work? All right. So, for example, <laughs> will they do the work? Will they do the work? Growing up in Iowa on a farm, but work ethic is next to godly. Mm-hmm. All right. So, one of the things I've learned is that there is a few folks out there in sales that just don't want to work. So, if somebody comes on to our company, one of the things we have established is key performance metrics, because activity leads to a first appointment, to a first meeting, etc., and hopefully a closed piece of business. So, here's the activity plan. 125 outreaches a week. That can be a combination of email prospecting, cold calling, eight networking events a month, two influence meetings a week, meaning who should you be meeting that should know about our business to establish further referral partners, two marketing talks a month. That can be me or if they're capable of themselves doing a marketing talk. We hold a monthly executive briefing in Denver. We have a training center there. So the person has a KPI of filling that room once a month with 10 people. And then we have a give goal of five. So each week we're hoping to help five people, clients, colleagues, in contract or out of contract. So if they can't show me that they have the ability to do that amount of work to get this business off the ground, 
they're probably not going to make it. They could be Zig Ziglar, wonderful selling skills. It takes work to get this business off the ground. I find myself tired just listening to your And that's not even any of the social media. Oh, my gosh. You know, that's, um, we've got LinkedIn, blogs, you know, articles and that. I'm just talking pure sweat equity. Wow. So that whole red flag about the work ethic kind of opened up this whole topic area here, which you, so you have this intricate plan about what exactly the activities, I mean, you have it down to X number of these, Y number of these of what you want to do. Did you just know to do that? Or did you customize it expressly for your business at the stage you're in? In other words, how did you come up with that incredibly detailed plan? Well, first of all, probably black from corporate life, we always had a we had KPIs for our sales reps. And mm-hmm. so I knew that leading indicators, the activity you do prior to a first appointment was the success indicator. Okay. So a lot of people will just measure appointments. That's called a lagging indicator. It's rear view window management. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not getting enough appointments, the problem is you're not doing enough things to generate it. So that was number one. Secondly, I've been in the business, I think, 13 or 14 years now. I just look back at what I did to get the business off the ground. Now, I wasn't the most skilled at this business when I started, so I don't think I was as strategic as I could have been. However, I found some things haven't changed. Marketing talks still bring in great business for us. It's that good old-fashioned stuff. And now we're adding some things like you know virtual workshops or virtual webinars as a form of lead generation. But we do an awful lot of business right in Denver, Colorado. I am not on planes as much as a lot of my colleagues. There's a lot of money right in your hometown. And I think sometimes people leave money on the table because they don't realize that or know how to work that. Just on record, don't move to Denver because Colleen's got the business. Okay. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not all the business, but we do our fair share. Yes. Between you and Laura Stack. Right, we got it. There we go. Derek Chester. Boom, yeah. you got it. Okay. Right. Between the three of you. All right. Okay. So we had the cool red flag uh, thing here. Let's say you do have the right person. And let's start talking about how to effectively use that person. I mean, how, how do you onboard that person? How do you make sure they're doing the right things that you want them to do? Okay. Well, they know the right things because I've laid out the key performance metrics. We also have an onboarding manual, Mm -hmm. which took some work to create. So the sooner you can get someone ramped up, the better. So I decided, you know, I had done this very formally in sales management, but Mm -hmm. you're your full-time VP of sales, you've got some time. And finally, I literally just took six hours on a Saturday afternoon and I found all the scripts. So if they want to invite him to an executive briefing, a cold call script, an email prospecting script, Uh, How do we enter things in our database? And we literally now have an onboarding manual that when someone comes in, we can say, okay, here's our expectations. Here's some scripts. We have value propositions because we train in a variety of industries. So when someone comes on board, they go to the value proposition section of the onboarding manual, and they know what to say if they're they're selling to a marketing firm, a construction firm, a technology firm. So we have different pain points already laid out which decreases your ramp-up time. And that's the whole thing. The sooner I can get this person successful, the happier we all are. So it sounds like this is also scalable because, I mean, all this work that you put into this, it'll work for one person, two people, three people, four people. Right, right. And part of that was I found myself just reinventing the wheel. I, it was that whole quadrant one, quadrant two. You know, the quadrant two was taking the time to create an onboarding manual, gather all the data uh, in one place. And I, yet I kept reinventing the wheel. So it's not like this has happened overnight. It came out of sheer frustration. <laughs> the source of all good solutions. That's right. All right. So you've, you've uh, vetted the resume. 
you've hired a person who has experience and demonstrated abilities in the, in the, at least the lead source generation activities that mm-hmm. you that you have with your business. Uh, you have this fabulous manual that's okay. Here's your activities. Here's what you say. Here's how you say it. Do you just let them go? Do you uh, do you kind of go on certain calls with them? Three months, six months later, you have a little chat. I mean, how do, how does that work? Generally, on the activities and skills, you want to be meeting once a week. Now, the reason I'm saying generally is right now I'm flunking my whole rule uh, because we're having an extremely busy first quarter here. So it's going to about every other week. And this person is tending to learn on the fly here, the, the newest person I've got on board. So I'm just trying to be congruent <laughs> with my conversation. Sure. But generally, what you want to be doing is that could be an every week conversation. Mm -hmm. Now, probably the challenge for speakers, if you don't have a defined selling process, it's hard to debrief a consultant that comes on board because you don't know what they're not asking or what they should be asking. Mm -hmm. When I debrief a consultant, my first two questions are, what was the uh, potential customer, the prospect's problem, and what was it costing them? And if they can't tell me what the problem was or how much it was costing them, we either aren't talking at the right level because if you don't know cost a problem, you're not talking to the right decision maker or they don't know the impact, or they miss some questions. Now, there's a whole bunch of other ones I can ask, Mm -hmm. but for our listening audience today, that could be a quick way to debrief. But if you don't have your own selling skills down, tough to debrief a new consultant because you do know the business better than they do. How long does it take before you know you've hired the right person or you've made a horrible mistake? Yeah, because even with all the best vetting, and Mm -hmm. and, and one thing I'd add is find someone that has a passion for the business because there's two things when I'm vetting the resume. I know what they should write the first year. So, for example, I have an Excel spreadsheet, and at the end of three months, I know the amount they should have deposited in the bank. Deposit mean like for them? Money. Like money, like their their take home. Oh, for the company. Right, and then I pay a base plus commission. So um, first two months, I'm losing money, and I have that figured into the equation. That's Mm -hmm. why I work real hard on vetting it. And then month three, there's X amount, and so it goes all the way to year one. So one thing to be careful of, you get a lot of hot shots, especially in sales training, and Mm -hmm. I'm I'm saying that respectfully, but everyone thinks they're going to write more business. And it's just a different business, as all of us know. So I make sure that can you live on this amount of money for the first year? If someone doesn't give me a firm answer, I will not hire them. I have gone down that road. At the end of year one, they actually hit the expectations, but they didn't make the money because they thought, but I thought I could do this. So I have it laid out for year one, two, and three. And I show that to the consultant prior to them coming on board because it's really year two and three that you want to be in this business. That's when you're making the money. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, there might be some people listening that have had success with people ramping up quicker as a whole, because I've run this by a lot of my um, other sales training colleagues across the country. My year one figures are pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. So at the end of three months, if they're not hitting it, we're probably going to have a conversation about possibly one more month or going to straight commission. Ah, and straight commission is code for you're probably not going to make it, so bye-bye. If you're going to make it, you're going to have to put a little more skin in the game. Ah, yeah. so that becomes a decision point for them. Are they going to recommit and go for it, mm-hmm. or is it uh, thanks for your insight into my skills and I will move on to something else. Yeah. And and sometimes, you know, I made a mistake last year where I had a terrific person come on board. So I made a hiring mistake because she had wonderful sourcing leads, good attitude, high energy. She actually didn't have enough sales experience under her belt Mm. to sell this type of sale. 
And it's a really intangible sale. And, you know, if you're selling bigger projects, and, and we're still great friends, she's sending us, she's still sending us business. So that was a mistake on my part, because I think I got a little arrogant saying, hey, we're a sales training firm, we can train anyone. So now I'm taking a, even a deeper look at that. What is that background? So I looked really too heavily at the sourcing on, on this particular consultant. Mm-hmm. So you have to continue to follow your own rules. Yes, you do. Yeah, right. there's no yeah. exception to that. It's I funny. Know, I darn. know, darn. Yeah. All right. All right. So those are some of your secrets for finding the right person and ramping them, getting up to speed mm-hmm. so that you can build your enterprise. Right. What's your speaker IQ? Yes, it's time to quickly quiz you on non-trivial trivia from the speaking, meeting, communications industries. This month, two targeted questions about publishing. Question number one. True or false, according to BookStats, a joint venture between the Association of American Publishers and the Book Industry Study Group, since the Great Recession started in 2008, net unit sales of nonfiction books have decreased by only 3.5%. And the answer is... False. Net unit sales have actually increased 3.5% since 2008. Question number two. Fill in the blank. According to BookStats, since 2008, e-book net sales have increased by blank percent. Now, to get this one correct, you just need to guess within 10 percentage points, okay? And your answer is... Hmm? 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 Well, if you guessed 1,039.6%, then you are smarter than a fifth grader, and likely smarter than most of your NSA colleagues. Guess it's time to get your book on. Hi, everyone. David Newman here with another edition of Point Counterpoint Solo Edition. My guest this time, Tom Winninger, CSP, CPAE, Tom weighs in on some divisive, controversial issues to help you make some smarter decisions to grow your speaking business. Well, Tom, our first oft-debated chestnut is memorized speech versus spontaneous presentation. What are your thoughts? Well, I have to warn you before I do this that I oftentimes find myself arguing with myself and lose the argument, so anyway, so, but but... My personal argument with myself about this is I'm a talking point speaker. So in other words, I come up with the talking points that I'm going to waddle around, dance around, or whatever, and that is my prepared speech. So I have a number of points in different areas, and I line them up so that they best approach the way the client would like to have them. So that's me. Um, And on top of that, naturally the stories, which are signature stories, for somebody like me, are then lined up behind those talking points. But I have never uh, written the whole speech out and done that. Now, uh, I argue with myself and say, well, it might be cleaner, purer, and whatever, because then you have a better flow. But uh, I, no, I, I'm a talking point speaker, and sometimes I surprise myself when I look up and the point's up there, but it's up there. <laughs> so the little voice says is, okay, you got to go with it. Just get over it fast, you know, and move on. Motivation versus content. Right. Is there such a thing as that debate among our hallways? Yes. And I argue with that is one I argue with myself about because um, I was a motivational speaker who got a lot of great stories who people love to laugh at. And I love doing that. I love just doing it, you know, and just going at those stories. And then when I get done, I go, what did you leave them with? 
Right now, I'm, I'm basically motivation 40%, content 60%, and my market now demands that, so I work hard on that, um, and, and I'll record myself. That's how I do, check myself. I'll do a lot of recording of myself live, and I'll go back and try to checkpoint myself. Where did I stay too long in the motivation story arena? Did I dip into the content flow? In other words, was I anchored in flow with story, or was I anchored in story with, with, with content? I would prefer to be anchored in content today with powerful stories that knock their socks off. They get them all excited about leaving the room and doing something about it. That's me today. Truly because I got to the point where I'd walk off a platform, and you know, at our peak, we were doing a lot of these, you know? And we'd walk off and I'd say, there is no personal gratification for me in this other than the fact that I got them to laugh, I got them excited, and I'm shooting them out the door. Uh, and not that motivation isn't important because I think you have to have it. But today it has to be a balance. If you can't motivate an audience to engage them to do something once they're, they've left the room, I mean, what do you got? You know, if you can't engage them in the room, what do you have? And that's how I relate motivation is, is in igniting an excitement within them to do something with what you share with them. Not just their life with them, but something they take away from you that they use the motivation to ignite. Customization. Customization a lot. Customization a little. Customization none. We've got some colleagues, for example, our friend Larry Wingett, yeah. that, that he likes to say, I could customize the program, but I would have to charge you less for it. Right. What do you think of that debate? Well, Larry and I have talked about this, and we are on the opposite sides of the table, and he's not jealous of me, and I'm not jealous of him. If he can go into any town and any group at any day and say the same thing without figuring out what he needed to do before he go because he has his soul hammered down, I emulate the heck out of him. For whatever reason, I've never been able to do that. You know, I'm, I'm a dig-into-the-drawers guy. I do believe it's interesting for me, though, and this was a formula I came up with my, for myself a number of years ago, and that is standardized, personalized, and customized. Three levels of consideration. So standard would be, man, persuasive art of selling, you're going to get it. Price wars, you're going to get it. You know, breakthrough, you're going to get it. You know, I'm going to do 50 minutes or 60 minutes, and I'm going to walk in. I'm not going to do interviews of your people beforehand. I'm going to figure you came because you heard it, and that's what you want to hear. Or personalized. Personalized to me is you're standardized with about 15% of them on the front end or intermingled in between. So personalized would be terminology changes. You know, something that, so a personalized speaker would take their standard content and pick out some terms that are common to them. Customized, on the other hand, for me, goes back to the 60-40. Customized for me is 40% customized, 60% me. And I really dig pretty deep because I'm a speaker who researches. And that's been very important. Our next chestnut that we're tackling is the pure speaker model, whatever you define that as, pure seminar, pure keynote, versus speaker, coach, consultant, plumber. So when you have these folks on that 36-month cycle, it's not just speaking, I'm guessing. Right. You do a variety of things and a variety of methods and media to help them improve their organization, improve their results. Right. Do you think that pure speaker model is still relevant, is still successful for some people on some topics, or is the, the pure speaker model a thing of the past? First of all, let me say I don't think it's a thing of the past. 
I think the pure speaker model is still out there. And I think those who have a relatively sophisticated uh, backup team that can ferret those out, keep them busy, you know, work with the client, which we'll talk about, I think, in a minute, about are you on the phone or is somebody else on the phone? Um, and I like that model. I have never been able to, uh, over 34 years in this business, maintain a speech-only model, either because my gifts were all added in other areas. But at, in my career today, even today, uh, one-third of my revenue is, or up to 40% of my revenue, is platform keynote speaking. And the balance of that is split between strategic planning for the client and tool development. And truly, tool development is a bigger piece for me than strategic planning. Because the tools can be massive, but it all comes from the keynote for me. I've never been able to sell strategy without the keynote, and I even tell the clients that. They'll call and they'll say, well, we would like you to come in, and because I'm a strategist by, by, by nature, I'm really a strategist, not a consultant, so I'll go in and set up the steps for them, but I don't want to stick around a long time. And they'll say, well, we'd like you to come in and do the strategic planning piece. And I say, you know, really, it would be best for us to package that together with some presentation I would do in front of the group prior to that. That has been my best relationships because then they get to know me, hopefully like me, hopefully engaged with me in a very short period of time. You sell yourself best versus selling and marketing is best outsourced to others, either outsourced truly or you have a sales and marketing team. What's been your experience? Or what's been the evolution of your opinion? You are the best closer of yourself. I don't oftentimes think we're the best salespeople of ourselves. I'll define the difference. When I came into speaking, I, I came in because I had gotten some press that got me invited to speak. And I didn't want to speak. So my associate pre-screened all the opportunities. And that has always been my success, truly. That I believe in sourcing a screener or an interviewer who gets down all the facts around the engagement before you get on the phone to close it. That's how I set them up. So in other words, uh, uh, Carla, uh, a, a request will come in. Carla will get on the phone. She'll say, you know, Mr. Winninger is traveling. I like her to call me Tom, but once in a while she says Mr. Winninger. And uh, she said, I'm sorry he couldn't make the first call, but he asked me if I would call and follow up and just get some parameters around your meeting and some of the directs you're going to go. And then we'll set up a conference call where he can spend more quality time with you. Okay, well, the beauty of that is she gets out of the way fee, she gets out of the way time frame, she gets out of the way all that stuff that I don't want to talk about. So she talks money with them. She does. Oh, yeah. She talks about fees. She says, now, could you share with me what your budget restrictions are related to this meeting? Because we don't, I'm, okay, we go back, here's, argue with yourself. Some people say, this is my number, take it or leave it. I don't do that. I try to analyze budget restrictions because I'm a budget builder. So in other words, I've learned the hard way, if they have a set fee for the speech, well, what do they have for books? You know, I just sold a client a thousand books. Well, you can run the numbers on that, and that was not in the speaking fee. Now, if I would have said what my speaking fee was, just in my life, that would have blown them out of the water, and they would have said, wow, we can't. our 
budget can't handle that. So she uses the question, you know, uh, what budget restrictions are you dealing with here? And she says, if Tom had a book available, he would like to personalize to your group. Would you be interested in that? And do you have, and do you have, and do you have? You see where I'm going with this? And then, then she talks a little bit about the potential interviewing. Would you, would, you, would you be interested in having him interview a few of the key attendees? Well, then they're hung. Then they go, whoa, would Tom do that? You know, and she sets all those up. So I, I've always had uh, a discovery person, interviewer, and I did move to in-house salesperson for a while, and I thought that was very good. But, and I was very busy at the time, but I felt I was disconnected with the client. Because oftentimes, I was just doing follow-up to the decision that had been made. I wasn't involved in really understanding where they could be engaged. Tom Winninger, CSP, CPAE, what words of wisdom can you leave us with on our solo edition hey. of Point Counterpoint? <laughs> well, if I wanted to be funny, I would say something about it's okay to lose the argument with yourself because sometimes yourself knows you better than other people. Indeed. But in all these years, I think the, a lot, most of the wisdom that has come to me has come to me from people who are much smarter than me or much more experienced. And the one I hang on all the time was something Ray Kroc said to me in a television booth when I was 25 years old because I was managing Ronald McDonald. And I looked at Mr. Kroc and I said, tell me something I need to remember all my life. And Mr. Kroc said, quote me, you never arrive alone. If you cannot share with the people that help you get where you got, you'll never get to where you could have got. That's what he said. Pass it out. Give it away. And hold everybody else on the platform. Not yourself. And now here we are with a special segment, Protecting the Biz. And back by popular demand, we have our favorite lawyer, Francine Ward, who is a business and intellectual property lawyer with a focus on copyright, trademark, publishing, and social media legal issues. Francine, thanks for being back. And what topic are we covering today? Social media legal issues. Social media legal issues. All right. So how are we going to start this off? Well, I have a question for you. It's a little quiz. I love quizzes. Okay. It's a game. Bring Excellent. it. Excellent. What do Kim Kardashian, Courtney Love, and Amanda Bonin all have in common? Well, I was going to say maybe creepy tattoos, <laughs> uh, poor choice in men. Um, but then I realized, uh, who's the last one? Amanda what? Amanda Bonin. Not Amanda Bynes, but Amanda Bonin. B-O-N-N-E-N. Amanda Bonin. Is she like Snooki's friend on Jersey Shore? (laughs) No. No. They've all been sued for something they said on Twitter. They've all been sued for something they said on Twitter. All three of them. So all three celebrities, right? No. Amanda Bonin is an everyday person just like you and me. All right. So... Back up here, because now I wasn't expecting that. All right, so so they've all been sued. So Courtney Love, I vaguely remember something. So what was the story with Courtney Love? Well, Courtney Love, hers was the very first Twitter lawsuit. And she was sued because of some very inappropriate statements she made about her designer. Now, anybody who's heard Courtney Love, they know that she's often yes. making inappropriate statements. But this time, she made the mistake of doing it on Twitter. Now, when you say inappropriate statements, so she was expressing some negative opinion about one of her designers. Well, what she what she said rose to the level of defamation. So it was more than just a couple of negative things. It was really pretty inappropriate. Which I think she takes inappropriate makes it a best practice. <laughs> yes. Okay, so you're saying the big deal was that she did it on Twitter. Yes, she did it on Twitter. 
And so uh, the designer sued. The designer sued. And in fact, that case was just recently settled. And um, Ms. Love has to pay a lot of money. So if you're having, if you're a speaker and you're struggling, have Courtney Love say something bad about you. (laughs) But okay. So that's probably not the application. So uh, what about Kim Kardashian? Well, Kim Kardashian a couple of years ago made some very inappropriate statements about Dr. Siegel's cookie diet. So Dr. Siegel sued Kim Kardashian. And what could possibly be wrong with a cookie diet? Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with a cookie diet as long as you don't make some nasty statements about it online. But so she again, got sued. And she got sued. And she had to pay. And she had to pay. But she can afford it. And she can afford it. Okay, so a normal person, Amanda. Where, who is Amanda? Where is she? Why do we care? Amanda Bonin is a young woman who lives in Chicago. And a couple of years ago, she made some very inappropriate statements about her landlord. She made the statement that her apartment was moldy. Now, how is that? Inappropriate. Now, if well, he's a creeper, he's, you know, that would be inappropriate. How we have mold, how is that inappropriate? Well, you know, obviously the, the landlord felt that that would affect his ability to have other tenants come in. I will say the case with Amanda Bannon, uh, Amanda Bonin was actually dropped. But the issue here is while Courtney Love and Kim Kardashian can afford to pay lawyers to get them out of trouble, Everyday people like us can't. So Amanda Bonin, whether the case was dropped or not, she still had to pay a lawyer to help her defend herself. Now, I vaguely remember from my legal communication back, I think, during the Civil War when I took it at UCLA, um, they said in uh, in a defamation case, uh, truth was a defense. So you're saying it doesn't even matter that what she was saying potentially was true about the mold? She was still defaming because she said it? No, no. Here's what happened. The, fa- the case was dismissed, and ultimately it was dismissed because it did not rise to the level of a, def- a defamatory statement because perhaps it was considered true. I don't remember. But the fact that she had to defend herself in court was the big issue. A defamation, defamation basically is, and it's known by many different names, libel, slander, disparagement, defamation of character. It could be any of those things. And basically, it's a negative statement about someone's reputation that causes them some kind of injury. Okay, I I feel the big uh uh-oh coming because within NSA, it's almost like a privilege that, you know, if anyone ever burns me... You know, at Subsidian Airlines, this hotel, I'm going to get up in front of 8,000 people next year and I'm going to tell them all or I'm going to use. And I mean, speakers constantly say that, hey, it's, it's material. And I say that. Are we putting ourselves in harm's way legally when we do that? Absolutely. And, you know, I've actually heard some speakers say that, too, from the platform. And, you know, I look at them and I just think to myself, I pray that no one is sitting in the audience who they're offending who then decides they want to take them to court because they they could easily drag them into court. And, And, you know, nowadays with the economy as it is, people will sue just because they can. Even if the case is ultimately dropped, do you really want to spend your time defending a lawsuit? So I say to, to my clients, just be careful about what you say. You know, it, do not have a clicker in your hand, a mouse in your hand, when you are really angry with someone. <laughs> so that's, that's probably a, a good safety thing here. It's like, don't mouse while upset. <laughs> you could get bumper stickers made with that. Don't, don't mouse, mouse while upset. <laughs> Okay, let's say um, that I'm a speaker and I've got a horrible hotel situation and I'm steamed. 
I can still still share the story, but I just can't say what the hotel chain was. Would that be? Well, you know, l- let me say this. There, there are websites like Yelp. There are a lot of sites today where people, in fact, are making very negative statements about specific entities, and they may get away with it. You know, they may. But again, I go back to the point, is that how you want to spend your time trying to defend? Because you may get away with it, but then someone may drag you into court. And even if you win, is that how you want to spend your days and nights? All right. So the application here is be angry, but be careful what you say unless you're married to a lawyer. (laughs) Be mindful what you tweet. Absolutely. And do not have that mouse in your hand when you are angry at somebody else. Unless you're Courtney Love. Unless you're Courtney Love. Or Kim Kardashian. Or Kim Kardashian. But not Amanda. But not Amanda. All right, now it's time to talk about the 2012 NSA Annual Convention. Yes, it's promo time, but don't touch that dial, as they used to say for those of you old enough to remember AM radio, because you really do want to hear these details here about what makes this convention unique. And speaking of unique, we are with the convention chair, Patrick Henry. Tell us about the convention here. First, everyone wants to know, what's the theme? Well, the theme for this year is Accelerate. I mean, how could we not go to Indianapolis and not tie into a race theme? A lot of people, a lot of our members are accelerating back into their careers. And so what a better tie-in than to use Accelerate 2012. It's a lot catchier than I've been sucking, but now it's looking better. (laughs) So, right. That was my theme. Yes. um, Okay. Not for everybody. So if you were to kind of like chunk it down to three things, what is this convention about? It's about me. (laughs) And I'll tell you why I say that, because whenever I'm thinking about who we should have as general session speakers, who should we have as concurrent speakers, I think very selfishly, what do I need? Because I think what I need is, is what a lot of people need. We need strong tools about how to grow different aspects of our business. Our unofficial guiding light is get booked, get bigger, get better. And Say so, that again. I like that. Get booked, get bigger, get better. So wherever you are, wherever your needs are, it's probably going to fall into one of those simple banners. And so under get booked, we're obviously going to be talking about sales, how to generate more business. And there's a lot of different areas that would fall under that banner. Get, get bigger. bigger. Yeah. Simply having a keynote and traveling around the country, delivering it, that model does not exist the way it used to. So we have to grow our enterprise. And so we're going to have a lot of programming dedicated to how to grow simply beyond a keynote. Uh, Get better. This is one that I'm very passionate about because what I've noticed, and I think a lot of people have observed, is a trend growing in the speaking business. High-paid, high-content experts with okay speaking skills. We're lame. (laughs) And so why not be high-paid, high-content experts who rock from the platform? And so we're putting in a strong presentation skills track with some good coaching components. Everybody will love our opening speaker, Jeannie Robertson. The Jeannie Robertson. The Jeannie Robertson. The legend. The legend, the myth. Because I want people to see in a general session speaker, I want people to see a brilliant speaker. And not everybody can be Jeannie Robertson, obviously, but they're going to see a professional. I can't think of a better way to kick off our convention. All right, so if I want to get booked get bigger, get better, when do I sign up? Is it, is it, can we register right now? Yeah, Absolutely, just go course. to nsaspeaker.org, click on that, drop down a few shekels, and I'm in. That's right. If you don't have the money now, start putting it away, because July will be here before we know it, and I guarantee your career will not be the same. And that's what charge cards are for. That's right. And now here's the question all of us need to ask ourselves. Who wants to be a speaker millionaire? 
this month, we're with Diana Boer, M-A-C-S-P-C-P-A-E. Diana, your company is called Boer Consulting, correct? Consultants. Boer Consultants, Consultants, correct. And it's basically a communication training firm. Yes. In fact, you could almost say it's a communication training enterprise because you don't just do training. You have products and services and all that good stuff. How many products? 130 products, actually. 130 products. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And like, how many different topics does that cover? We have about 20 different topics. 20 different topics. So mm-hmm. now They're we, all under the communication umbrella. Absolutely. But, you know, that's, if you're talking about oral, written, interpersonal, cross-functional, communication is a pretty broad topic area. It's a pretty broad umbrella to be under. So you were basically taking communication topic, and you were the Ginsu knife and just sliced and diced that baby into all these different topics. <laughs> right. Right. And who is your core customers that your enterprise sells to? Primarily Fortune 500 companies because we're going after multi-year enterprise-wide contracts. The company has to have a large enough white-collar knowledge worker population to be able to bring us in. So you specialize in those who will actually pay you well for what you do. <laughs> yes. Okay, that, right. that's a good niche. Right. We should all we, probably do that. Actually, when we teach a sales rep to go after this group, we say don't go after a company that has fewer than 10000 employees. Okay. And when you said sales rep, you alluded to a key point here. Boer Consulting isn't just, I thought I would slap consulting after my name. It's me, myself, and I. That You have employees, you have uh, freelance contractors. How, how many folks are kind of in your little empire here? There's always a core of about 7 to 14 at any one time on staff, you know, full-time payroll. But then we bring in contract trainers to sure. do programs. Your enterprise is executing a strategy that we've already heard from several of what we're calling the NSA uh, Millionaire Speakers Group. Speakers who have built an enterprise you know, with their speaking is obviously more than just their speaking now into an enterprise that is doing a million or millions of dollars. You're in there, and a key thing, obviously, is you chose to replicate yourself. It's not just you being the most exhausted speaker on the planet. <laughs> I I did for this reason. When I started out back in 1980 and wrote the first book, uh, it wasn't the first book, but it was the first business book, IBM saw me on an ABC TV show and called me to come up and talk with them at headquarters. And they said, who do you have? And I said, you know, at that time I had a couple of assistants. I'd only been in business a year. And I said, I'm really the only one doing the program. And they said, that really scares us. What if you get hit by a bus? And we're bringing in 70 people from around the globe for your four-day program. At that time, I had a four-day program. And you can't show up. And that's when I began to think, this is, this is going to be a problem for big companies. And just a few months earlier, I had lost a big contract at Shell Oil. I was working in the oil and gas industry pretty exclusively up until that time. And Shell Oil asked me to come out and talk with them. And they said, we have 50 workshops for you next year and I said I looked at my calendar I said I don't have 50 two-day slots open and they gave it to a huge competitor who is now Franklin Covey and I said this won't work there's a limited capacity you've got to get more people so hearing that within two month time from Shell Oil and then from IBM I decided I have to get more people to do my workshops I can't just hire support staff they have to be other professionals who are qualified to go out and do it or there's going to be a limit on income Interesting. Uh, several times with uh, speakers that we've interviewed for uh, VOE who've made big leaps, it's like the customer has driven. If the customer has essence told us what we needed to do to take our business to the next level. Right. I didn't come up with that idea because I hate to run a business. I absolutely hate to run a business. I'm an author. I like writing. And that was what I wanted to do. And I still love that. And I consider that my calling and developing products. 
And that's what I spend most of my time doing now. But for a time, that's what I had to do because the customers kept saying, you've got to get more people. And it took a while to train. You can't just snatch people off the street and say, come do these programs. It's called kidnapping. <laughs> yes. okay. they, they really have to have extensive training to do what we do. And that's why it took me away from what I really love to do, which is write. And that's exactly why we're talking to you now, because there's a lot of folks in NSA VOE land who are listening right now are saying, I'm now ready to make that step of the journey myself. You know, I, I've, I've done the speaking, I've got the training, I've got the products, and I've, I realize I want to create something that's more of an enterprise, something that's bigger here. So wouldn't it be great if I didn't have to go through as quite as long of a development process because I can just coast off of what you've already done here. So there's two kind of core questions. You know, how do you recruit and train others to present your programs? So that's kind of a core question. And then how do you get clients to accept them instead of you? Where do you find these dynamic people? I mean, you, you basically looking for little mini-me's of you? Or you know, who are you looking for first? And then where do you find them? Well, first of all, to answer your question, I'm looking for somebody who is a lot better than I am. I look for people not in certain positions, but I look for personalities. I'm looking for someone who's very articulate, outgoing, high energy, enthusiastic, who's just good with people because my field, of course, is communication. I would have a different profile if I were looking for a financial advisor. Sure. But that's who I'm looking for as far as personality. I don't even ask them what they're doing now. So you're not looking for speaker trainers necessarily. No, than their no, current job. no, no. I'm just looking for personality. And that's the reason I can find them anywhere. I am looking for the energy level because this is a high energy job. You have to love people. You have to love what you're doing. And energy, I think, is one of the most important things you can have. And they have to be articulate, of course, and be able to think on their feet. Okay, so high energy people, because you're really going for like the attitude, the personality here. Now, what mm-hmm. about age? Does it really matter? Are you looking for people, young people? Are you looking for mature people? Are you looking for all of them? Age is not such a factor as it's more lifestyle. They'll always tell you they like travel because they're thinking vacation. You know, I love vacation. But you have to investigate that. Yes, do you love traveling to Cleveland? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Or Midland or Odessa, Texas or some Mm -hmm. oil field company or that's what you need to find out. Okay, so that's who you're looking for. You're looking for these energetic, lifestyle-oriented people who truly want to be road warriors. So where do you find them? Well... I have found the education field a good place to find them. Education for two like teachers? Yes, teachers, professors, even high school teachers. I like for them to have a master's degree because our audiences demand it for the subjects we teach. You know, business writing, technical writing, it doesn't matter so much in presentation skills. But for the consulting side, when a client says, I have this problem, we can't get this department to communicate with that department. We have, uh, we're writing code over here and we need to translate that for the CEO of this organization or we're developing proposals and they're dealing with the C-suite, they need to be able to think at a strategic level. And so if they have all PhDs sitting in the room, for some reason, that's just sort of a threshold for the credentials to be accepted, to be credible. All right. So that's uh, where you find the, the right people. It's like, how do you onboard them? You know, I'm Joe or Josephine Academic, PhD. I know the genre well. Maybe I was, you know, the head of a communications department or I'm a communi- mass communications professor. And you say, okay, you know, you got the right personality. You got the right attitude there. How do you indoctrinate them? How do you 
get them on board with your content. It's a very difficult thing to do, time-consuming for them and for us. So we're, we don't bring on people lightly. For example, the first few people I brought on was almost a three-year process. They have to be experts. It's not the, you know, some of the public seminar companies that you hear about, here's your manual, learn this, you're an expert, and show up in Chicago and Tuesday Tuesday to be an expert. Those are not the kind of people we want. So you're not just throwing them into the deep end and seeing if they swim. No. Uh, For for example, I've had one trainer who's been with me 18 years, one's been with me 21 years, one with 14 years. So, and they don't work for anybody else. They're contractors, but they don't work for anybody else. So you give them enough business and there's the expertise and the loyalty that's built up over time. And so to build that kind of expertise it takes a lot of diligence and time on their part and a lot of investment on our part one of the things we do is we have them to look through our files we're always for example our technical writing proposal writing that kind of thing we say those are the samples here's a whole file cabinet of samples we've collected from the oil industry the banking industry the insurance industry etc look at those samples and they may spend a day just reading IBM samples or Exxon samples. These are proposals or Uh, all kinds of samples. Emails, uh, letters, proposals. I want them to get familiar with the culture of that company, what they say, the terminology from all the different industries, because we work in all different industries. We we Mm -hmm. don't niche pharmaceutical industry or the banking industry or whatever. So that's part of their training. Then there is extensive training because we teach presentation training. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to work with them to get them to the next level. So you train them? I will train part of it. I have a master trainer that works with them to to teach them the courses. But as far as teaching them their presentation skills, I'm going to work with them to teach them how to teach a better story because they're going to be using anecdotes in the classroom. So I'm going to work with them one-on-one to get their presentation skills to the level that we want them to be because they're always going to be on stage. They're always, I don't care what, uh, which of the 20 courses they might be teaching. Our clients know Boer teaches presentation skills. So even if our trainer is in there teaching customer service communication or running effective meetings, they're still watching that trainer's presentation skills. Mm -hmm. So before they do anything, they have to be able to tell a good anecdote, Mm -hmm. their PowerPoint has to be great or whatever. So I'll give them one-on-one training in their presentation skills. Once we do that, they're going to participate in our courses. They're going to learn all of them by sitting in there. That's a month's training. They're just like 20 <laughs> courses. Yeah. How long uh, does it take to learn 20 courses? Well, no, they're not going to learn them. Oh, they're going to participate. They're going to attend, they're, as yeah. a student, they're mm-hmm. going to set through those courses. Then we're going to give them all the materials that they have. They're going to have a leader guide. And when I say a leader guide, IBM has told us, they call them cookbooks. They mm-hmm. said, you have the most specific cookbooks I have ever seen in the industry. I mean, if it says lead a discussion, we don't say lead a discussion on such and such. We don't say ask them questions. We say pose this question. Expect answers like this. And they're going to have all the answers that the so class might So this is like com- scripted. Oh, this is like yes. The, like the tour guides at they Disneyland are this thick, Disney three, World. Three-inch like, thick Here binders. is what you say. So you're ensuring a consistent yeah. experience. Yes. We want consistency. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't throw in their own story, uh, but we don't want them to deviate too much mm-hmm. because, again, that's why you go in McDonald's and you're going to always get a hamburger that tastes just like the Big Mac. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can't put their own sauce on it just because they're the manager of that store. And you go in Chicago and it's got a different sauce on it. It's the same because we're managing our brand. And it can't be dependent on 
you know, Sally used one story and Chris used another and Robin used another. They have to be consistent. All right. So the, so they've they've got some one-on-one training from yes. you. They experience all of the classes. They've they've gone through your cookbooks. They maybe spent time with your master trainer to learn a particular yes. course. Yes, and they have to go away and learn that. And, yeah. and then we have it online. We have we mm-hmm. have recorded a lot of the different trainers teaching yep. these programs. And then so they have their own access code. They go online. They watch it. They learn the program by watching it over and over and then they then they sit in on the classes that the other trainers are doing to watch it and to hear what questions get asked for this reason you might say why are you making this huge investment they have to be able to customize and you might think well this is weird you just said you want consistency what do you mean customize in our programs what they deliver there is a certain curriculum they're delivering but at any moment a student may come up and say i have this technical document you're teaching me how to write these procedures but my boss just brought me this new set of procedures can you look at tell me what's wrong or how to improve it or we're sending out this proposal tonight and it's a three million dollar proposal and my boss says the executive summary is not very well done. He wants me to redo it and bring it in the morning. Could you look at this in your hotel room tonight and bring it back to me? Mm-hmm. So they intuitively have to know the content really well. And then they have to respond to questions about that. And John may be sitting in the class and Margaret says, could you read his proposal out that his boss thinks the executive summary just really is bad and tell us what was wrong with it and what you did to improve it? Mm-hmm. So that's where it's customized. Let me give you an example of that. We were working for a large pharmaceutical company, and on day two, the client came in and said, you know, yesterday they said this is the best training they have ever had. I don't want to do your curriculum, though. I want you to take their formula presentation that they go in and make at the hospitals, the CEO of the hospital, and spend all day redoing their sales presentation based around our product line we're getting ready to launch. Well, please throw say, it yes out. for a few extra dollars, but yes, okay. Throw, throw out what you were going to teach us today mm-hmm. and build your whole curriculum. Spur them on. This is like 10 minutes before the class is to start, and you're going to teach Thinking on Your Feet, but use our program. You're going to teach how to respond to difficult questions, but choose all the questions we get, our sales reps get, and teach all your techniques around that. And then help us message our statement around our new brand that we're ready to launch. So you're going to make sure you have people of that caliber who can do that. Who can do that spur of the moment. All right, so they've they've got all the learning. I mean, uh-huh. so with all this investment, but now they got to start actually training it into, you know, not independently but I mean on their own. Mm-hmm. So do you have like okay, here's like the cheap client I give it to or I mean, how do you decide their process of them actually doing it on their own? They actually co-teach with another trainer, master trainer. Before that, they even get signed off. They'd say it just for that code, it's like teacher. a pilot, like a little check yeah, ride. They do a right. check ride. We have a checklist. It's like a two-page checklist. A and they, two-page checklist. Yes, for every key point that they have to make. A very gruesome process. I for hope them you to pay them very it. well. Just <laughs> <laughs> just saying. It's like wow. Uh, but I hear you. You're having these hugely high standards. So you have these the modules, and you have them get them checked off module by module. Yes. And how often do you say, "Up, oh, not good enough." Uh, they usually have to go through it on average about three times before they get checked off on that module. And it's more than like ticketing like your your law degree. It's yes, like, yes. And frequently they'll say, "Well, I used to work for so and so, and I've been training for twenty years, and I've never." Well, I'm sorry, that's the standard that we've set, and that's the reason our trainers average on a ten point scale valuations for everybody in the room. They average about a nine point eight. The average is average, 9.8. Yes. And many times they walk out with a flat 10 with everybody in the room. And 
that's that's the standard. So that, that's how you get to that standard by yes. that much investment. Yes, and and the reason that's important is because in tough times, many many of our clients have said we've let go of every outside vendor except Boer. Every one of them. We're not. Our, our executives said we're not spending any outside dollars this year, except y'all. That that's who they're asking for. And so except for y'all, if they're the, from y'all. the south. Okay. If they're from the south, just you know, if they're Yankees, right, except use except use guys. Okay. But we're only keeping Boer in there because clients are asking for it. They've they've tested your results if they've been through your programs and other programs they've used, and we have measurable results that actually present better mm-hmm. and the executive the c-level can tell the difference and y'all are the only ones left and to maintain that long-term multiple year contracts that get renewed over and over and over we have to have that standard it can't be average i don't care how long you've worked for you know this particular blue chip company for 50 years it's got to produce results that the executives see and notice enough for the people to go call HR, whoever they call the vice president of sales, and say, we have to have Boer in here to teach these programs because it makes a difference. All right. So I think it's pretty clear now how you're able to get great results. But let's talk about how the process of them finding you. So I'm from a company, and I see you, Diana present at a conference and she was fantastic uh let's get her in your folks do a great selling job here and it's like well wait a minute i i want a diana and you're now am i getting like are they thinking am i getting the jv the junior varsity here in other words how do you get clients to accept not you well the first words out of my mouth when they say something like that is generally oh well my trainers are far better than i am and that takes the the wind out of their sails. That takes them back, really. Uh-huh. And and I mean that sincerely. And they can tell that I mean that sincerely. Uh-huh. The reason they are is that they do it every day. I don't do the training anymore. I haven't done the training. Uh, I first went my, my company first went over a million dollars back in 1990. And so I stopped doing training back then. All my training was turned over to trainers back in 1990 and all I do is conferences and speaking and writing product creation so they do it four or five days every week so they are far better than I am and that's what I tell them and I tell them that genuinely and sincerely I do the strategic thought process behind it and if the C-level suite has a, a big issue in the company they want to talk to me and they want me to come out and coach their executives. That's and more of a consulting yes, arrangement, and a consult- not, a, not yes, a training yes. thing. Yes, and help me fix this problem. Design this process for us. Design this issue. Talk to our executives about what we need to correct in this company. But then once we get down to the skill level, then the tactical skills that need to be transferred to their people to execute that's what the trainers can do. And so that, I sincerely mean, the trainers can do it better because they have it all learned and it can be put in a process and it's just like learning to ride a bicycle or anything else. And you teach them the thought process about why this works and why ask the questions like this and why the document needs to be structured like this and why a meeting agenda should be set up like this. And if you're teaching listening skills, why 
passive uh, listening doesn't work and you know you, you, all the different communication courses that you teach have a thought process and you explain it to your trainer so they understand it and it becomes intuitive you know and gut level for them and they can do the, the thought process so I take the wind out of their sails when I say they do it far better than I and then I come back with this guarantee if you are not pleased with the results First of all, you owe us nothing. It costs you nothing. You've gotten free training. Well, you know, you can't argue with that. Sure, yeah. They love that. Mm-hmm. But for a higher executive, they're not looking at that cost. That's minimal sure, to them. They look at the they're they're cost. looking at the yeah. opportunity cost and the time. You know, I've got 20 highly paid people sitting in that room. That's expensive to me. Mm-hmm. And so I come back to this thought, and this is sort of my third guarantee or convincing argument when I'm making my case. I say, I have spent 30 years building a reputation. If I send you somebody and they do a bad job for you, I'm through in your organization. I have just risked your business for the next five years or eight years. That is very expensive. Do you think that I'm going to send you something that's going to cost me half a million dollars? And you're probably going to have three other friends that you're going to tell, don't ever have Boer in there. That's an extremely expensive deal for me. So I am not going to send you someone that you are not going to be thrilled with. So when you uh, are talking with the bottom line people, you go toe-to-toe with bottom line and say, your bottom line, what about my bottom line? Yes, absolutely. Once you do those three things to say, they're better than I am, number two, if you're not completely happy for whatever reason, you don't owe me a penny and then let them see what my risk is. Your risk is nothing compared to what my risk is if they botch it up. I, I don't have any argument. I've never had anybody say, oh, well, never mind. So you've, you've built this business model over 21, 22 years. Mm-hmm. What has this enabled you to do as, as an individual because you don't have to do it all? Well, it's given me freedom. First of all, I think the real eye-opening thing, I told you the conversation I had with IBM, but I think the real eye-opening experience, my daughter was in high school and she was trying out for cheerleader and I had to be gone the day she lost that cheerleader. She came in, she was, it was her, the tryouts and she was the, the next one, you know, when they get the top six and she was number seven and she was so upset and I had to be consoling her on the phone and I thought I don't want this ever ever to happen again I want to be there was a junior high thing I don't want ever have to be consoling anybody my dad had had a heart attack the year before and I thought if he has another one which he's had two more since then and a pacemaker and and when I go on the the road now I'm thinking I always want to be anywhere in any situation where I can be home when I want to if they're sick if my dad has surgery I can just say I don't want to go. I've got other people to send. It just gives me the ultimate freedom for my personal endeavors. Uh, If I decide I want to write another book, I can write another book. If I uh, have a media opportunity. For example, when I did, I was booked to do um, some engagement for J.C. Penney a long time ago. I remember that morning and Good Morning America called. Well, I don't want, I'm sorry, I can't be on Good Morning America today because I'm supposed to be at J.C. Penney, you know. <laughs> I just picked up Shopping, the phone and, you know, and one of my trainers was not assigned, available, and I said, can you get out here? I need to do a, I need to fly to uh, Good Morning America the next morning. They'd called on Sunday to confirm. They'd mm-hmm. been talking to me and I wasn't sure it was going to make and finally they decided, yeah, you know, we want to interview you in the morning. So it just gives you the ultimate freedom. 
So, Diana, you said kind of early on when we started this conversation that the kind of the aha moment for you was when you were pitching to IBM and they were digging you and they were saying, yes, and how many of of you are there and it's just me? And they went, that scares us. And you didn't get the job with them because there was just one of you. So now that you built this enterprise, did you ever get back in with IBM? I did. Actually, I had two trainers actually working for them full time for two years. They got tired of paying the fees. And finally, I said, hey, would you like to license the program? And they bought the next two and licensed a perpetual, bought a perpetual license. And the next course and the next course and the next course. So yes, I have done business with IBM for a long time. Full circle. And now here's our president's message with NSA National President Laura Stack. Is the speaking business turning the corner for the better? During my recent visits to several NSA chapters, the answer appears to be yes. I heard much positive news about how business has loosened up, clients are calling again, and the attitude is more hopeful than in many years past. And if attendance at NSA events is any indicator of the economy, things are definitely looking up. With 385 attendees and 98 first-timers, the Winter Conference a few months back in Dallas in February had the highest attendance we've enjoyed in four years, which, I'm sure, is due in no small part to the stellar program assembled by co-chairs Ruby Newell-Legner and Bill Stainton. The conference's Monetize Your Message theme clearly resonated with attendees. Our speaking businesses involve much more than simply standing on a platform and speaking. The spoken word can easily be repurposed into webinars, videos, coaching, and online training. One thing the recession has done is require us to get more creative about selling when we're not on the platform. The monetize your message focus of the conference, and some presentations in particular, rekindled an ongoing debate, and that debate is between speaking and information marketing. We discovered that it's not an or, but an and, meaning monetize your message is built upon having a robust speaking schedule and being great on the platform. There is a distinct difference between speakers who monetize their messages versus information marketers who never have to craft a message for a live audience. I had a conversation with speaking veteran Connie Podesta, who commented, I hope the new speakers realize that all the great ideas presented at this conference rely on two things, hard work and a strong fan base. There are no get-rich-quick schemes that can replace those factors. Getting lots of real-life speaking experience help you develop a strong fan base, which can then be used to monetize your message in new, profitable ways. Her comments made me think about many of today's veteran speakers who cut their teeth on the rubber chicken circuit, speaking hundreds of times to anyone who would listen. I remember Eric Chester counseling Roy Vaden and Art Berg telling Chad Hymas if they really wanted to be a professional speaker, to go out and speak for free a hundred times. Why? Because that's how you get good. Not by reading text off a teleprompter for a video or reading a script like I'm doing here for an audio recording. That absolutely has its place and purpose. 
But if you want to become a good speaker, you actually have to get up in front of an audience and speak a lot. As Connie said, this business is extremely hard work. It takes years and years of polishing and practice. And the very best way to hone your speaking skills is to get on the platform. Monetize your message into different channels, yes, but don't substitute communicating your message live. We are the National Speakers Association. Always have been, always will be. So come to the NSA convention this summer in Indianapolis, July 14th through 17th, and find the right balance for you. Keeping with the racing theme of Indy, our convention chair, Patrick Henry, and co-chairs, Donna Cutting and Vanna Novak, are going to help you accelerate your speaking business. Patrick told me, NSA is a diverse group of speakers from varied backgrounds and expertise. Regardless of where they are in their speaking careers, Accelerate 2012 will fast-track attendees into the winner's circle. We have designed a conference that not only showcases the best and brightest of our business, but the concurrent sessions will help you get booked, get bigger, and get better. You'll see why NSA is the world leader in providing the education, community, and entrepreneurial business knowledge for all experts who use the spoken word to present content for a fee to their audiences. Make plans now to be an indie this summer so you can speed up your speaking success. Each month, VOE closes with a special segment called VO Me. That's basically commentary by me about some aspect of platform skills, communication, marketing, or just something that strikes my fancy. Today, the topic is an elevator speech for the Nissan Leaf. Fast Company was interviewing Nissan CEO Carlos Gosen about their as-yet-unproven all-electric car, the Leaf. The editor somewhat imperiously told him, quote, Give us the 30-second pitch for the Leaf, unquote. And he did. And his answer serves as a case study for short-form, persuasive pitching. He started with what I call the single-sentence summary, quote, this is the only zero-emission car on the market, unquote. Bam! Right from the start, he nailed the Leaf's unique selling proposition, and it took just four words, only zero-emission car. But so far, Carlos was just speaking to the head, and if he left it there, he would have been leaving the key part of people's decision-making anatomy out of the conversation, their emotions. So he continued, quote, Other electric cars use gasoline. This one... There is not one drop, unquote. Double bam. He leads with a slam against his competitors. Notice the dismissive other cars coupled with use gasoline. And then he doubles down with contrasting emotional language, quote, not one drop, unquote. Now consider how much more powerful that is than a more typical statement like this one doesn't use any. Of course, a problem with electric cars is that they're perceived as boring. So Carlos addressed that. Quote, it's fun to drive, but I can't describe it. The only way you'll discover it is by getting behind the wheel. There's no vibration, no smell, no noise. Let's break that down. He flat out makes a claim that isn't widely accepted yet, that it's fun to drive. He then says he can't describe it. That instantly hooks us, and unconsciously we're now telling him, yeah, well, now you have to. And then he goes on to do just that. Carlos powerfully uses the rule of three with sequential no's. No vibration, no smell, no noise. 
So what's left to say? Quote, This is the future, and everything else is going to look obsolete, like sending messages with pigeons. Unquote. Carlos once again used evocative emotional language. Did you catch the importance of the word he didn't use? Carrier, as in carrier pigeons. He trusted the intelligence of his audience, Fast Company readers, to know what he meant so that he could use an economy of words and end his 30-second pitch with maximum dismissive phrasing. With pigeons. If we as speakers choose to craft 30 seconds to sell ourselves as well as he did with the leaf, Fast Company will soon be interviewing us for a future issue. Well, that's it for this month. Let's keep the conversation going on VUE by visiting us on Facebook. And we'll talk again in May. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.